Welcome to the Match 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Daniel chapter 6 continues our Hope Against Hope series. Jess looks today at hope practice. Hey, I'm Jess. I kick off tonight with a little bit of a game of which story is that. Shout out which story you think it might be. Okay? So what movie am I talking about? This Disney movie is the tale of a royal heir whose parents die prompting them to run away from their kingdom and then sing a song about letting go of their worries while things fall apart back home and so the heir returns to defeat the evil prince who's trying to take over the kingdom. The heir is victorious and their rule over the kingdom is proven to be true. What movie is that? <laughs> Shrek? Nice. Any other, any other suggestions? The Lion King? Frozen. Okay. Multiple stories that have the same plot line. Stories that get repeated time and time again. Patterns of stories. Stories are filled with kings and heirs and challenges to the throne. And we see that again in Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 opens with Babylon under the reign of a new king, King Darius. We read in Daniel 5, verses 30 to 31, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2. The Babylonian Empire fell, and a new empire took over, the Mede-Persian Empire. And a new empire means a new king. Only, there's a little bit of confusion about that. From historical and archaeological evidence, we know of a King Darius who ruled the Mede-Persian Empire. We also know of a King Cyrus who ruled the Mede-Persian Empire. He's the king listed at the very end of chapter 6. The only problem is, it looks like the book of Daniel has got them in the wrong order. You see, we know from our archaeological and historical evidence that Cyrus conquered the kingdom and took it over from Belshazzar, and Darius succeeded Cyrus. Now, this is something that we should pay attention to and carefully investigate. It's not something that we should fear. I want to talk you through quickly two levels of interpretation that I think it's important to take note of when we come to Daniel chapter 6 and this question around Darius. The first is that we can reconcile the account that we have of Daniel 6 with our historical understanding. Scholars see two possible ways to do this, uh, and you'll soon see that I think one has a little bit more weight than the other, but they're both worth mentioning. So some argue that for the writer of Daniel, Darius and Cyrus are the same person, and a different Darius succeeded Cyrus. They argue that in verse 28, The and that we have translated there is better translated that is. So then verse 28 would read, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Totally possible. Little clunky. I think 
the one that I'd probably put a more of my weight behind is a second interpretation. This one suggests that Darius was a vassal king for Cyrus. This would mean that Cyrus conquered the kingdom, conquered the Babylonian Empire, and then placed Darius, who will be his successor, as a king over the city of Babylon. So Darius is still king, but king over the city of Babylon, not king over the empire, at least not yet. And this reading seems to be supported by the book of Daniel. When it talks about Darius as a king, it's passive and it's limited. For example, when we read again of Darius in chapter 9, it says that Darius was made king rather than became king. It's passive. In 531, your NIVs will state that Darius took over the kingdom. But that word for took over is, again, it's a passive word, meaning to receive or to be given. And so it's totally possible that Darius was made king over the city of Babylon by Cyrus. So when we get to the end of chapter 6, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and Cyrus the Persian. So we might ask, why didn't the writer just spell that out? Well, to start off with, there might be some assumed knowledge taking place here. Everyone knew that that was the case. Why bother writing it? But also at play is that second level of interpretation. We've talked about the place of this passage in terms of historically. But we also need to talk about its place linguistically. What role, what function does this account play in the book of Daniel? Why might it be helpful to talk about Darius the king? What truth, what message is it conveying to us? Let's have another round of which story is that. I'm not going to get you to call out your answers this time, but I want you to think through them in your head. This plot line. A faithful Israelite in a foreign land finds himself standing out because he refuses to obey the king's command, which is contrary to God's command. His loyalty to God is put to the test, but he remains faithful, and in the end, he and his God are vindicated. Is that Daniel 1, where Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse to eat the king's food and are given 10 days to prove their faithfulness to God, to their God Yahweh was worth it. And in the end, they were healthier and better nourished than all the other recruits. Is it Daniel 3, where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, now known by the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down to the statue that they have been ordered to by the king? And their faithfulness results in them being thrown into the fiery furnace. Yet their faith was proven to be rightly placed when they came out of the furnace unharmed. Or is it Daniel 6, where Daniel defies the edict of the king to pray to no other god but him for 30 days by praying to the one true God anyway? And his faithfulness results in him being thrown into the lion's den. But God shuts the mouth of the lions and Daniel walks out unharmed. Three tales 
of opposition to a king and three tales of faithfulness to God being held up as right. See, in Daniel 6, we meet a new king, but we soon learn that it's the same old story. It's a pattern that gets repeated time and time again, not just in Daniel, but in our world. This pattern reveals deep truths about our world and something astonishing about our God. The first ingredient in this pattern is the challenge to the faithful. Daniel stands out. He stands out for a good reason. Darius comes in and he sets up this new system of organisation. So we've got 120 satraps who report to three advisors who report to Darius. And Darius, as the new king, does something quite smart. He takes a look at who was uh, reliable and in power and competent in the, in the regime before him. And he gets their loyalty and he places them in positions of power and authority in his new kingdom. And so Daniel, who is obviously known as someone who is capable and good and wise and, and good at his work, is placed in this responsibility as an advisor, administrator. But then, in that role, Daniel's qualities are of such excellent standards that Darius decides it would be a good idea to hand over the day-to-day running of the kingdom to him. But word gets out. The other administrators and satraps and advisors and leaders are jealous. They want to tear Daniel down. And so their first move is to try and ruin him by character assassination. Only the problem is, there's no dirt there. They can find no corruption or negligence in him. He is trustworthy and dutiful. See, Daniel does his job well. Because it's an expression of his faith and his loyalty to his God. Throughout the Bible, we see God's people encouraged to be people who work hard, who are faithful to their job, who are trustworthy and honest, that in whatever they do, they do it for the glory of God. Daniel is living that out and it makes him stand out. Imagine the impact that that had in Babylon. Imagine the impact that that would have today. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about Mr. Rogers, uh, who was an American uh, known for his kids' television series, Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. They were describing this guy, middle-aged Presbyterian minister who wore cardigans and spoke softly and had a very popular kids' show. And as they were presenting it and describing this, this man, the host noted that they, how surprised they were that they didn't have to follow that description with a but that had come across these days. Imagine what it would be like if God's people were known for their integrity, that they could be investigated and find no corruption in them because they were trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. The trustworthiness that flowed from Daniel's faith makes a statement to the point where the satraps and the administrators had to hatch a new plot. A plot that would target Daniel's foundation. The fact that Daniel was a solid worker, that he was capable, that he was honest and true, 
None of those things stopped him from being a target for these men. 1 Peter in the New Testament weighs up these two realities. On the one hand, it says, who is going to harm you for doing good? You are eager to do good. Who would want to harm Daniel, this man of great character? It shouldn't be the case. But on the other hand, 1 Peter says we should also not be surprised by this fiery ordeal as though something strange were happening. You see, this is the pattern. The faithful people of God will find themselves in opposition to the world, will find themselves targets by those around them. So when it came to Daniel, they couldn't discredit him because of his faithfulness. So they were going to find a way to use his faithfulness against him. So in verse 5 we read, Finally these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Seems like the only thing that Daniel was more well known for than his integrity was his devotion to God. So they have a new plan. It's a plot that appealed to Darius's ego and targeted Daniel's foundation. Verse 6, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed, well, not all of them, Daniel is missing. They've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. The advisors knew that this is a law that they could trap and catch Daniel with. And it was a law in which they could trap the king. It's a repeat of chapter 3. Worship what I command or be killed. This time the law will be enforced not by a furnace but by lions. And this time the object of worship is not a statue but the king himself. Just look at how the advisors stroked Darius' ego. Set yourself up as a god to be prayed to and worshipped. Look at how they praised the new rule of law that the city was under under his rule. Your laws are so great that they cannot be repealed. Look at how they expressed the power of the law. Enforce it with lions. The advisors think they've set the perfect trap. But what they didn't know is that they had entered themselves and the king into a contest that they could never win. This is false God versus true God. This is Medo-Persian law versus God's law. This is the power of a king versus the power of the living God. That Daniel knew. Daniel's habitual habit of praying was obviously so well known that these advisors knew that they could catch him, catch him breaking that law within a month. And not surprising, Daniel's response to hearing this new edict 
was to go into his upstairs room where his windows opened to Jerusalem, opened in the direction of the city that represented God's presence and deliverance. This is where Daniel prayed. He prayed in Babylon, in a city where worship of God stood out, in a context where it made him a target. Daniel lived in Babylon, but he didn't live for Babylon. He lived for a greater city. He lived for God. We too live for a greater city. Revelation, at the end of the Bible, paints this picture of the new Jerusalem. That greater city where we have life and deliverance and promise to us. Daniel knew that Babylon was not all-powerful. Daniel knew that Babylon was not the end of the story. He lived to serve his God. And prayer was a non-negotiable practice of his faith. And so when offered the choice to obey God's law or Darius' law, it was no choice at all. Daniel gets down on his knees and he prays and he's arrested. He's brought before the king And finally, the king twigs, realizes the extent of the trap that he is in as king. This man who had been fooled by his advisors to set himself up as a god is now rendered powerless. The first time we hear the phrase, in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed, it strokes the ego of Darius. Yet the second time we read it, it smacks of irony. Darius is trapped by his own law. He didn't realize that this would charge Daniel. He loves Daniel. He wants to put Daniel in charge of the running of his kingdom. He's distressed. He doesn't want this to apply to him, to Daniel. And so he works all day tirelessly, but he's trapped by his own deeds. He cannot undo what has been done. The law cannot be repealed. Darius is no god. He is powerless. He's stumped by this law. His law is flawed, and soon it too will be rendered powerless. This particular law was supposed to be enforced by lions. And Daniel is thrown into the den and it's covered with a stone. But not without Darius, confronted by his own powerlessness to save Daniel. Darius utters and recognizes the glimpse of hope that Daniel might have. I can't save you, says Darius, but perhaps the God whom you serve continually, the God whom you serve even in the face of my own law, perhaps he can save you. And in the morning, we see that glimmer of hope proven to be true against all odds, against the abominable trickery of the advisors, against the actions of a king who set himself up as God, against human law, against the hunger of the lions, against an inescapable den, 
Daniel is rescued. His faith in God is vindicated, proven to be true, proven to be worthy. And it's more than that too. You see, God himself had been challenged by the actions of the advisors and Darius. They had set themselves up in opposition to the living God who endures forever. And in saving Daniel, God proved there was a greater law at play, a greater power at play, the one true God at play. God is vindicated by Daniel's salvation. Darius is astounded. He's seen the power of God firsthand and he issues a new decree which nullifies the old. All of a sudden, that doesn't seem to be such a problem. This new decree reads that in every part of his kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. The faithful living in a foreign land will find themselves under opposition and under threat, whether that be an Israelite in Babylon or a Christian in West Planet Hills. The loyalty to God, faithfulness to God, will be proven right because God is always vindicated. Faith in him is always going to be proven to be true, proven to be worthy. Let's play our final round of what story is that. Again, think in your head. A man faces death because of the sins of others and because of his faithfulness to God. He's put in a dark pit with a stone rolled over the entrance. But in the morning he is found to be alive. The people of God are rescued from death because they trusted in God. God vindicating himself in Daniel and Daniel in the lion's den points us forward to the ultimate act of vindication in Jesus. God is the true God. He is greater than Darius. He is greater than sin and he is greater than death. So when Jesus was found to be alive after being buried in the tomb, after taking on the sins of others, God is vindicated. That is why the writer of 1 Corinthians can proclaim, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Daniel was rescued from death by the lion. And we are promised that we too will be rescued from death in the resurrection. God is vindicated. Faith in God, loyalty to God, is worth it. The book of Daniel paints a picture, outlines a pattern for us of what it would be like for the faithful. They will live in opposition to the world, but their faith will be proved true, and they will be saved from death. Lord, we pray for you, for you are the living God and Jesus forever. 
Lord, you vindicate yourself and you vindicate your people. We pray that when we face times standing out, being different, because of honouring you, because of following you, we pray that you might remind us of the hopes that we have in you. The hopes that we saw as you Daniel from the lion's den. And the hope that you proved to be true when you raised Christ from the dead. Lord, we pray that we might have this truth settled in our hearts. That we might know this hope deeply and personally. We pray for this in your name. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.